the sounds of spring are in the air, and soon another sound of the season will join the chorus, road construction equipment. Now the end results of each and every one of the improvements, I definitely think it'll, it'll be worth it. Learn more about the Peoria Area Bridge Projects on IDOT's list this year, just ahead on All Things Peoria. Good afternoon, I'm Colin Shope. Jody Holtz has the day off. Coming up, WCBU's Joe Deacon has a roundup on this year's upcoming bridge projects in the Peoria area. And learn why daylight saving time can be particularly hard on one population. Any change in routine is also difficult for people with Alzheimer's disease. Plus, on Out and About, hear about Cornstalk Theater's upcoming production of She Kills Monsters. Those stories plus local news just ahead. This is WCBU's All Things Peoria on 89.9 FM and WCBU.org. From the campus of Bradley University, this is WCBU's news magazine, All Things Peoria. I'm Colin Shope, in for Jody Holtz today. Motorists in the greater Peoria area will have to contend with construction work on many of the Illinois River bridges this summer. Most notable among the Illinois Department of Transportation projects is a $24.6 million upgrade of the Bob Michael Bridge that gets underway this weekend. WCBU reporter Joe Deacon talks with IDOT Public Information Officer Paul Wapple about what work is being done and what motorists can expect on their commutes. The rehabilitation of the Bob Michael Bridge is scheduled to start March 13th, so next week, uh, weather permitting, and the bridge will remain closed to vehicular traffic until November. However, the bridge will stay open to bikes and pedestrians throughout the project. On March 12th, vehicle traffic will be reduced to one lane in both directions in preparation for the March 13th closure. Uh, motors will be detoured across the river on the Murray Baker Bridge, carrying Interstate 74 from downtown Peoria to East Peoria. So what's all involved with this renovation? What improvements are being made to the bridge? The work consists of removal of the sidewalks, reducing the outside shoulders to three and a half feet wide, and consolidating the bike and pedestrian space to the north side of the bridge. The redesign will result in a 14-foot wide multi-use path with a concrete barrier wall that separates cars and the path to make it safer for everyone who uses the bridge. The new bridge deck will include a concrete overlay, and new joints to help preserve and extend the life of the deck. How much better will it be then for drivers and pedestrians once it's opened? It should be, you know, a lot better. Uh, definitely be a lot better. You know, the Bob Michael Bridge was built in 1993. Uh, it spans about, you know, about a half mile, carries traffic, of course, in Illinois 40 over the Illinois River. And, you know, it accommodates about, on average, 17,000 vehicles per day. And it's one of those six bridges that cross the Illinois River, you know, in the Peoria metro region. So. It's time to, to do some work on it, definitely. You mentioned all the other bridges in the area, too. Where does work currently stand on the McCluggage Bridge project, and what's been done so far? What's left to be done? Things are going well. Uh, the new eastbound bridge is expected to open late February 2024, so just a little under uh, a year from now. Um, and after opening, there'll still be some work to be done, you know, to complete the eastbound bridge over Adams Street. But we did significant construction progress in 2022 on the eastbound McCluggage. Uh, the uh, it's getting closer to the finish line. You know, crews completed construction on 10 new McCluggage bridge piers last year, and that moves the project to within three new piers of the 24 
that are required to support the deck of both the main bridge and the ramp. Workers are currently you know, working on completing those structures, so it is getting closer to completion. Uh, workers will complete you know, the bridge substructure in the next several months, and they'll be simultaneously constructing a 650-foot arch that will sit atop of the new bridge. Uh, the construction of the arch is occurring about 300 yards south of the new bridge site, and it can be identified by the green piling and the steel support towers on the Illinois River. So, and when it's complete, that massive arch will be floated into place on barges, lowered onto the piers on each side of the navigation channel, uh, sitting 130 feet above the deck and distinguishing, you know, the McCluggish Bridge for future generations. A little further north, the uh, Illinois 17 bridge between Lakin and Sparland will also be shut down for the next several months. What will this project entail? Yeah, the Lakin Bridge, uh, the cost of that project is about $10 million. It'll include steel repair, a bearing rehabilitation, joint replacement, painting, a bridge deck overlay, roadway lighting, drainage improvements, and some other related you know, miscellaneous work. And some of the special project provisions include some special environmental accommodations that will be made to prevent debris, equipment, tools, or any other construction-related materials from falling into the Illinois River. So uh, and that may result in closing the spans except the main span over the navigation channel to, to all river traffic at times when that happens. To what extent might ongoing supply chain issues impact these projects and timelines and potentially lengthen these closures? I don't know. You know, every project's different. Hard to, to predict or say if we'll have any delays uh, on the projects or anything, any of these bridge projects, uh, either the ones are either underway or will be underway soon or in the future. It's just, it's too hard to predict, you know, if there'd be an impact. With all these simultaneous bridge projects in the region, how much concern is there about traffic overloads on, say, the Murray-Baker Bridge or the Cedar Street Bridge or even the Henry Bridge north of Lakin? What recommendations do you give to motorists about those possibilities? You know, the one thing we want to remind motorists always, you know, anytime construction, whether it's on a road or bridge or wherever it might be, is to please be patient, you know, pay attention to, to the orange cones and work zones, uh, signs, and everything, please slow down, pay extra attention, be careful, and allow extra time uh, to get from wherever you're going, from point A to point B. There is a lot of work going on on the number of bridges in the Peoria and Peoria metro area. Uh, it's all important work that needs to be done, and you know, the end results of each and every one of the improvements, I definitely think it'll, it'll be worth it. That was IDOT Public Information Officer Paul Wapple talking to WCBU's Joe Deacon. For more of this conversation and additional information on the bridge projects, go to WCBU.org. You're listening to All Things Peoria on WCBU 89.9 FM and WCBU.org. Broadcasting from the campus of Bradley University, this is WCBU's news magazine, All Things Peoria. I'm Colin Shope. Jody Holtz has the day off. We'll lose an hour of sleep this weekend as we spring forward and move our clocks ahead one hour early on Sunday. Studies have linked daylight saving time to depression, headaches, a slowed metabolism, and weight gain. The health risks can be especially challenging for people who suffer from Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. Melissa Tucker, Director of Family Services for the Illinois Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, tells Eric Stock how longer daylight is especially disruptive on Alzheimer's patients and their caregivers. There's a couple of things going on there. Um, we do know, as you said, that people with dementia 
often have trouble sleeping. They they tend to sleep during the day and be awake at night. We're not really sure what is specifically causing that, um, but there is a change in the circadian rhythms of, of people with dementia. And that can be really hard on the caregivers if they're being uh, kept awake at night. And any change in routine is also difficult for people with Alzheimer's disease. As people get out of those very early stages, it's hard to adjust a schedule. So if someone is suddenly getting up an hour early or, or asked to go to bed an hour early, that can be disruptive and confusing for the person with the diagnosis. So what does that lead to then? What are the the short-term and long-term risks of someone who's perhaps a little out of balance by that one hour? I think what we see is any cause in um, problems with the sleep is going to increase confusion in the person with dementia. Um, people who may already have a difficult time uh, being awake and active during the day or sleeping at night, that's going to be exacerbated by the change in schedule. Um, we recommend a lot of things to people to help with sleep disturbance. I'm always recommending, you know, having a structured scheduled day. Um, a service like adult daycare can be good for this. Activities during the day that happen at the same time to just help keep people on that schedule. And when there's a sudden hour-long shift in that schedule, that can make things harder. It might be harder to get the person up in the morning for adult day, and then they're not having that structured day, and then they're going to sleep during the day, and you might find that uh, it's even harder for them to get to sleep at night. So it's that shift in the schedule may be making um, some problems that are already there more uh, difficult to deal with. We often hear among the general population that those who are, that when daylight savings time happens, there are greater greater numbers of car crashes and those kinds of things. When you're, when you're talking about those who are dealing with the dementia, what is more likely to happen? Well, um, you know, hopefully by the person by the time that the, the person is uh, to the point where they're having these sleep disturbances, they're they're not driving anymore. So hopefully that isn't happening. But it might just become a more stressful caregiving situation for for the caregiver. Um, it is so hard on people to be caring for someone who is awake all night. You know, if that person is is maybe still working or has things to do during the day and they're not able to sleep because their parent or their spouse is awake at night, then um, the care partner, you know, is probably at, at risk. We know that um, not getting enough sleep is really bad for cognition, even in, in people that don't have a, a disease process like dementia. So it can impact the health of the caregiver. I, I definitely talk to many caregivers whose health is being negatively impacted by lo- loss of sleep. So you want, want anything you know, to make that worse for that person. Is gaining an hour the same as losing an hour? Is there any real difference in terms of disrupting sleep patterns? Well, I don't know any data about that, but it is a shift in in the time. You know, you the person with dementia isn't necessarily going to understand that now they need to um, go to bed early or, you know, they're not going to sleep in that extra hour and, and maybe uh, they're, they're getting up. Um, and if, if a person with dementia is up and about at night, um, you know, you, you have concerns that that person might try to wander, they might try to leave the house, or they might think they have to get up and, and uh, cook breakfast and leave the stove on, you know, because the care partner isn't awake. So all of those things uh, can be a concern with a, a disruption in the sleep schedule. And how significant of an impact does this have on their caregiver? And how do they prepare themselves for the instability that could result from this? 
not every person with dementia does have sleep disturbance or, or have uh, behavioral disturbances. And I do always you know, want to emphasize that. But if, if you are caring for someone that has a history of sleep disturbance or if you notice, if you've noticed in the past, maybe with daylight savings time changes that uh, this has been a concern, one thing you can do is instead of just all of a sudden changing the clocks an hour, maybe just change them 10 minutes at a time. So you're not abruptly shifting that schedule. Um, the, the things that I recommend for people that are struggling with sleep are, are all those good sleep hygiene suggestions, which the caregiver would need to implement for the person with dementia. Having a regular schedule as, as much as possible, having activity during the day, getting natural lighting during the day, um, all of those things can be helpful for the person. How many days does it typically take for that adjustment to, to take place? How long does it take before they're adjusted typically to that additional hour? As with so many things with dementia, every person is different. Um, people are going to respond in a very individual fashion. So if I were speaking to a family, I'd, I'd want to know you know, specifically what kinds of concerns they're seeing, what kinds of challenges they're facing. I think it's really gonna be different for every person. There's been talk, even at the congressional level, don't know how serious, that they might eliminate daylight savings time and make it one standard 12 months out of the year. Would you support that? Well. Um, you know, speaking as a, as a representative of the Alzheimer's Association, I, I don't think we've taken a particular stance on that um, that I'm aware of. Uh, just speaking personally, though, I hate daylight savings time, so I, I would be for it personally, but I can't speak for the association on that. That was Melissa Tucker from the Alzheimer's Association of Illinois with Eric Stock. Tucker says if you're concerned about memory loss, the association has counselors available on its 24-hour helpline. That number is 800-272-3900. You're listening to WCBU's All Things Peoria on 89.9 FM and WCBU.org. Broadcasting from the campus of Bradley University, this is WCBU's News Magazine, All Things Peoria. I'm Colin Shope, in for Jody Holtz. On this week's episode of Out and About, Michelle Tipsord, Chris Peterlin, and Ryan Salisbury join WCBU's Jody Holtz to talk about Cornstalk Theater's upcoming production of She Kills Monsters. The show opens tonight at 7.30 p.m. and runs through the 12th and continues the following weekend with performances on March 17th through the 19th at the Cornstalk Theater Center in Upper Bradley Park. Welcome to Out and About, you three. Thanks, Thanks, Jody. Thank you to be back again. <laughs> so, you know, we have a fantastic show here that likely, you know, maybe not a lot of people have seen or are familiar with. Michelle, as the assistant director, can you kind of tell us a little bit about what She Kills Monsters is all about? Yeah. Our main character, her family dies in a car accident. And to get to know her younger sister who passed away, she plays through her final Dungeons and Dragons campaign. So we effectively put a live D&D campaign on stage, complete with monsters and fights and everything. We really kind of wanted to balance like the spectacle of it with the safety of our actors. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our fights are actually in more slow motion. Um, and that kind of also plays into the whole, you know, yeah. this is an imaginary game kind of thing. Um, but a lot of them are set to music and there's mm -hmm. cool lighting and all kinds of stuff. So it, it still looks really awesome, even though it's, you know, slower than you would think it is. So we did work a lot, like we spent at least a night choreographing each fight and then we've done fight calls and reworked them and all sorts of things. So, you know, Chris, as the stage manager, can you tell me a little bit more about what the audience can expect from the set and the costumes? I know it's a very tech-heavy show. Um, we're going to have some media. Um 
Kevin went away of um, filming. We, we filmed some scenes. We filmed at least two scenes mm-hmm. um, and a couple of blips here and there. But uh, there's going to be a lot of lighting. Uh, we have Amy Glass as a lighting designer, and she has done a lot of special effects. Her husband, Jeremy Glass, is working uh, music that um, uh, just goes so well in hand with mm-hmm. the fighting. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, it just sets the mood. Everything he has sets the mood for everything that's happening throughout the entire show as does the lighting. So it's going to be a really great show. And now, Ryan, I understand that you play Chuck, who is the game master. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about, you know, his role in the story and how he is, you know, somewhat controlling what's on stage. Uh, yeah, I think he's got a lot of layers to him. I think on the surface, Chuck's really just a goofball. And like, that's kind of something that you'll see towards the beginning. But um, as the story moves out, he just kind of helps it unravel and helps characters, uh, helps them through their arcs. I guess a lot of what it is is since uh, one of the characters is dead, what he's trying to do is bring her back to life so her sister can kind of uh, understand what she used to be like throughout the show and so her sister gets to learn about her. I've had a lot of fun with him. There's kind of two sides to the show. There's the outside the game, there's the inside the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, he spends some time outside the game, but inside the game, while all the D&D characters are interacting with each other, he's always in the background uh, just pantomiming, DMing, which has been a lot of fun for me. If you're just joining us, you are listening to Out and About on WCBU, a part of the NPR network. I'm Jody Holtz, and today I'm talking with Michelle Tipsord, Chris Peterlin, and Ryan Salisbury, members of Cornstock Theater's upcoming production of She Kills Monsters. The show opens tonight, March 10th, and runs for two weekends at the Cornstock Theater Center in Upper Bradley Park. And yeah, so, you know, while the show is super big and, you know, fantastical in a way, it also is very touching, and um, Agnes, one of the sisters, seems to learn a lot about who her sister or Tilly really was, even the parts that Tilly, you know, kind of kept hidden. To any of you, what sort of journey does the audience see Agnes, this main character, go on emotionally through this as she's undercovering the secrets of her sister? I, 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 what I saw is, is that, and I had this kind of similar journey, Agnes is older than Tilly, much, not much, about seven 10 years. years, seven, 10 years. Seven years. And um, so, you know, when you're going through childhood and you get older, you are, you're in different groups, basically, even through school, through life. Um, And uh, if you don't remember to take a personal interest in your younger siblings, that's what the show is reminding you. Um, She just is reminded that she did not know her sister. She gets a chance. She gets that second chance. I think it's also a lot about um, her realizing that just because her sister was different than she was Mm -hmm. doesn't mean that she had any less interesting or fulfilling of a life and so you know it shows that there really is a place for everyone regardless of who you are what you like you know what you do Um, and that's that's part of what I love about the show Mm -hmm. is it's just really really open and accepting of everybody where they're at yeah yeah, there's just so much, you know, yeah, going on in the show. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's also unique in that the show also explores the sexuality of, of a young woman, Tilly, and, and how much she struggles. Michelle, why do you think it's important to depict this sort of struggle on stage and, and let the audience in on this part of her? I think it's, you know, a very important conversation that we're having as a culture right now. Um, and it's something that I think a lot of adults don't truly understand that teens and even, you know, kids go through um, questioning themselves, questioning their identities, questioning who they are. And it's important for, you know, theater to be able to show them in an accessible way that this does happen and Mm -hmm. it does happen to lots of people. Um, And, you know, it's also really cool 
for me to see because we've got a lot of really young kids in our cast. Um, our cast is really young for everything we're asking them mm-hmm. to do. And they all come to us from very different places in their lives. And it's been really great to see them all also have that space mm-hmm. to feel accepted and to feel like they can truly be themselves. In a nutshell, Ryan, why should people come out and see the show? As someone who plays d and I can say that if you play Dungeons & Dragons, you will definitely resonate with a lot of what this show has to offer. It sh- really shows what it means to a lot of us and what it can mean to different people. It also, I'm sure there will be moments in the show where you've seen in your own campaigns, like, yeah, I've been there. And anyone who hasn't played Dungeons & Dragons, I guarantee after they see the show are going to want to. <laughs> That was Michelle Tipsword, Chris Peterlin, and Ryan Salisbury, members of Cornstock Theater's upcoming production of She Kills Monsters. The show opens March 10th at 7.30 p.m. and runs through the 12th and continues the following weekend with performances on March 17th through the 19th at the Cornstock Theater Center in Upper Bradley Park. For tickets, visit cornstocktheater.com. Thank you all so much for coming in today. Thanks for having having us. And in the studio next week, I will interview the new host of Out and About, Executive Director of Arts Partners of Central Illinois, Dr. May Gilliland Wright. I'm looking forward to introducing her and hope you'll join me right here on WCBU and WCBU.org. And while you're out and about this weekend, there is plenty of fantastic theater that's sure to keep you entertained. If you're looking for a musical, In the Heights at Peoria Players has performances Saturday at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday at 2 p.m. Or if you prefer drama, Niche Theater Arts presents Salem's Daughter Saturday at 6 30 p.m. and Sunday at 2 p.m. at the ICC Performing Arts Center studio space. For more information on these and all other arts events, visit artspartners.net. You've been listening to Out and About, a production of WCBU and Arts Partners of Central Illinois. Each week, Out and About connects you to the arts community by talking to local arts leaders, artists, and performers. And you can hear it here every week on All Things Peoria. Support for arts and culture programming on WCBU comes from PNC Financial Services. We're focusing on giving back as part of an ongoing commitment to the community PNC serves. You're listening to All Things Peoria on WCBU 89.9 FM and WCBU.org. And that's all for today's episode of All Things Peoria from WCBU, a public service of Bradley University and Illinois State University. I'm Colin Shope, in for Jody Holtz. Thanks for listening. Story help today came from Joe Deacon, Eric Stock, and Jody Holtz. Holden Kellogg produced this episode of All Things Peoria. For more information on all of these stories, head to wcbu.org. And of course, you can also subscribe to All Things Peoria podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or the NPR app. And we do want to know what you think of the show. So let us know by commenting on our Facebook page where Peoria Public Radio, or following us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBU Radio. This is 89.9 FM and WCBU.org Peoria Public Radio, part of the NPR Network.